Ce soir c'est sacré, je vais au théâtre. Qu'est-ce que tu vas voir, Carmen Pour être enfant de bohème, la 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 la. J'aime pas l'opéra, le ciné c'est mieux. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It is December 1918, and Jose Arroyo joins us today to discuss Carmen. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, uh, we're here with Jose Arroyo. Um, Jose, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm uh, a Canadian. I teach film studies at the University of Warwick in England, and I've been doing it uh, for many, many years. I was one of the people who started the, the Montreal Mirror in Montreal. My interest uh, in Lubitsch is really comes from an interest in cinema. I, I was interested in saying that you titled uh, uh, your podcast, How Would Lubitsch Do It? You know, after the saying that Billy Wilder had on his desk. Because, of course, how Lubitsch did it is fantastic. I think he was in his time because he died in the mid-40s. I forget the exact date now. But for classic filmmakers, and by classic I mean the Billy Wilders or the Orson Welles, that generation of filmmakers, he was the inspiration. Because how he did it was full of imagination. He did it like no one else. There are, there are scenes in some of his films that just dazzle you, really. So my interest in Lubitsch is an interest in cinema. I think he is the equivalent of Hitchcock. You know how I feel it's almost you can't understand or know of a history of cinema without some kind of understanding and viewing of Hitchcock. And I feel the same way about Lubitsch. You know, so kind of what Hitchcock does in relation to suspense, right? Lubitsch does in relation to to a kind of uh, a humane and expansive understanding of the comic. So that's mm. my interest in Lubitsch. I began just by seeing some of his films like anybody else, really. And then there are films that the more you know about cinema, the more ingenious you find. It. There's a scene in Lady Withermere's Fan where there are some gossips at a ball, right, where, you know, he's using the women coming up from the bottom of the screen to indicate that they're gossiping, right? And you think, who thinks about it? When was the last time mm -hmm. that you saw anything like that? That people, you know, a director uses the frame in its fullness. Like the things not only come from the top, like a, an airplane about to bomb something, but also kind of from the bottom. And that it's not spectacle. It's not you're coming from the bottom to get a surprise from a shark or something. But actually, yeah, to indicate these gossips that are kind of like everywhere along this frame. I mean, it's just... I think, kind of magical to see, really. I mean, I think every filmmaker needs to have an understanding of space, you know, and narrative and repetition and rhythm and things like that, the way that kind of Lubitsch does. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of constantly gobsmacked by what he does. I mean, I can tell you so many scenes. There's a scene in The Merry Widow, right, you know, where mm -hmm. uh, the widow is uh, sad. So all of her things, uh, her dressing gown, her shoes and everything turns to black. And the reverse happens when she decides to come out of her widowhood. And that includes her dog, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's one of the things that Lubitsch was famous for. You have a surprise and a surprise and a surprise. Yeah, and there's always a topper on top of, of that. And the dog here is the topper. 
Lubitsch's main goal is really to delight. You know, so if, if Hitchcock wants to scare you or surprise you or shock you yeah, or turn you on, Lubitsch, I, I like the word delight because that's what he does. So his films are sometimes sexy. You know, they're sometimes witty. They're sometimes sophisticated. Everything that he shows you, he does so with the viewer in mind and with the intent to delight that viewer. Yeah. And to delight in an honest way, in a way that kind of has an understanding of what people are, what, what people's failings are. Yeah. And that nonetheless kind of believes in a, a fundamental good heartedness in people, even in his villains. Yeah. There's always a twinge in which you feel sorry for them. You understand kind of what they've done. Yeah. The shop around the corner, the gigolo. Right? Mm-hmm. You kind of understand what all <laughs> him really. In Trouble in Paradise, which I think is the greatest comedy of all time for me, you know, and part of the reason why it's so great is because he makes jokes out of everything. There's this famous Tony Zoo video essay about comedy where he says, you know, American films have forgotten how to do comedy. All they can do is dialogue and improv and situation, but nobody makes things funny out of the audiovisual, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Lubitsch does. You know, there's this, this wonderful beginning in the film where, uh, you know, there's a robbery. And then you see like a garbage man. You know, the garbage man is singing with the voice of Caruso, right? And then you realize like, you know, these people who you think are barons and royalty, they're actually crooks. And the people who are actually high society people uh, are the real crooks, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there's a scene where a man is being visited by prostitutes, right? And, you know, all of the humor out of that comes in the fact that the, the prostitutes are speaking in Italian. <laughs> and then the doctor comes in and he makes a whole joke out of the pronunciation of tonsils, right? Everything gets repeated once in English, once in Italian. Yeah, the word <laughs> that you can understand is tonsile. And tonsile is used as a punchline to a joke about three or four different times, right? And then there's a wonderful scene where the crooks meet. So, you know, there's this, this baron and this countess, but really, where both crooks meet. And it's at the moment that they discover that they're crooks. And that's one of the jokes that's a topper and a topper and a topper, right? Mm-hmm. So it's Miriam Hopkins who says, oh, here's your watch. I've regulated it. So she's not only stolen it from him, but she's such a good crook that she's had time to fix the time <laughs> on the watch, right? Yeah. And then he, you know, he gives her her brooch back, says it's got one very good jewel, right? So he's had the time to look and see what the value of that was. And the topper of the topper of the topper is he's managed to steal her garter <laughs> without her <laughs> noticing, right? So, you know, and they embrace with this recognition that they're both crooks, right? You know, and it's in this delight in their crookedness, right? And in the imagination of their crookedness and so on. It's just lovely. And it all kind of plays off with the audience in mind, with the use of style. So there's a moment in this very light comedy, you can imagine. It's a wonderful line as well, you know, where Miriam Hopkins says, oh, I'm so bored. You know, it's always like kings and queens and dukes and princes all wanting to hawk you their jewelry. <laughs> right? So the incongruity of those things. And of course, it is that time. It was the time of revolution. Yeah, lots of deposed kings and princes were probably like selling their jewelry in Paris, right? I like that you use the phrase humanism to describe Lubitsch because that scene where the two crooks in Trouble in Paradise uh, reveal themselves to each other is it's the closest thing I can think of to like the quintessential Lubitsch morality, right? Where it's not about, you know, are these two crooks? Like, what's their statue of birth? You know, uh, were they born into wealth? No, to Lubitsch, these two are 
high society because they're so good at pretending to be. And therefore, yes. there's no real difference. In fact, they're they're better <laughs> than, yes. than the high society folks they run into because they've earned it by being crooks. Lubitsch is all about appearances, right? I think his background, his father ran a clothing shop that also, a little bit like Shop Around the Corner, that also mm-hmm. sold gifts yeah, and things like that, right? I forget what that type of shop was, was called. But, you know, he is someone who comes from a family that sold shoes and suits and dresses yeah, and things like that. And he's, you know, he's very conscious of appearing as a kind of being, yeah? So appearances matter to him. And I remember reading somewhere, you know, that he had this view of life, that life really was so horrible and dangerous, or it could be so horrible and dangerous, you know, that one had to just skate past it, right? Like elegantly and try and have fun and do the best that you can and just skate through it, you know, as elegantly and joyfully as possible. Because, you know, at some point or later, sooner or later, you might sink, you might fall. But the the idea was, yeah, to keep on skating and those surfaces kind of, you know, looking as, as, as good as you can and as elegant as you can in the process of doing so. And I think all of these things match up, you know, to his idea of what people are, his idea of fun. Like, it's amazing how joyous his films is. I also love Tubich because in his early films, like The Wildcat, you get this idea that it's a young man in love with the medium of cinema. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so there are all these masks. I don't know if you've seen it. There's, yeah, you know, uh, we just watched it a couple of weeks ago. It's wonderful. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's this soldier and he's forced to leave town. Right. And he's saying goodbye to all the women who love him and so on. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's just. Yeah. So obviously there's a delight in sex and romance and yeah, and so on. But he kind of shows all of it by showing the action with like a dozen different kinds of masks, right? There's mm-hmm. round ones, there's swirls, there's scrolls, right? So this idea of playfulness, of playfulness with the image, of you know, drawing attention to something that's happening in a very decorative frame. I mean, it's just lovely, really, yeah? I don't think I've ever seen so many aspect ratio changes in one movie, it was, it was lovely. So I, th- and I think he's the most undervalued. He hasn't been given the same kind of attention that someone like him, I think, deserves, right? He hasn't been given the attention of even some of his German contemporaries, like like Fritz Lang, yeah? Or even mm-hmm. Murnau, actually. Much less someone like Hitchcock or Buñuel or Wells or uh, all of these people who ostensibly, like, really inspire. He really inspired. And why do you think that is? I think there's a few, like, possible explanations, and it's probably a combination of many, but what's your read on that? Why is Lubitsch overlooked in a way that Hitchcock, Ford, Long aren't? Because he's light. Or, or rather, let me put it in, other, in, a, in a different way, because he's not light. I think he really gets to the depths of the human heart, so to speak. <laughs> right. But he does it in a light vein. Without the support or the context of major movements in the serious arts, right? So, for example, Buñuel gets a lot of traction out of the fact that he's a surrealist. Yeah, and surrealism in art gives his films a kind of seriousness and weight and social relevance. And I don't think uh, uh, Lubitsch benefits from any of that. He's not part of any circle in that respect. Uh, you know, he's not part of an artistic movement. He's not uh, related to German expressionist cinema, which was happening 
you know, at the same time as, you know, the, at the time the German expressions, uh, expressionism was developing, he was arguably the central figure in German cinema. Yeah, certainly kind of, you know, amongst the most famous, both as an actor, as a, a, a director, as a personality, and also by then as a producer. But he's not considered part of that group of people because he didn't make dark, dour films dealing with the dark recesses of the human mind <laughs> and the culture. I mean, the, the closest he got was The Wildcat, I think, in terms of mm. German expressionist visuals, at least. Like, that one feels like it's almost taking some cues yeah, from it, but turning exactly. it into, like, a birthday cake. I love him, and I love seeing his development. I mean, even as he's acknowledged to be one of the great ones, the work isn't explored or isn't explored enough. And I think part of that reason has to do with the fact that most of his films, and certainly most of his famous ones, are comedies. I think that the second half of this film uh, is a is an interesting study in this. He never, I think, made a straight drama that I thought was truly great, and that's not for lack of trying at certain points of his career in his career. But to be or not to be, I think part of why that film has such traction as like a serious work of art. You know, that's the one where it feels like the comedy is in service of a very, very dark, not a message, but a, a, amusing. And, and, you know, for something like The Merry Widow, you know, if I had to pick w one of his films that I think is should be appreciated more, it's that one. That one is completely frothy. There is nothing underneath the surface of that movie that you could kind of get at on the level of like to be or not to be in terms of some sort of applicability to you know, some, you know, in this case, human calamity. But The Merry Widow, to me, is like a masterpiece of fun. I mean, the thing about about Lubitsch is, and I don't quite know how to express this without sounding, you know, like a really old-fashioned and dull humanist, but I do think that his understanding of what people are like is always tinged with sadness and loss and failure and regret and sometimes not being very nice and being cowardly. You know, I mean, look at the shop around the corner. This man who loves his wife, who basically ends up kind of, you know, trying to commit suicide. This woman who is one step away from the street, who you basically get the feeling that she's supporting her aunts, right? Who is, has been sexually harassed at work, right? There's that wonderful line where he says, oh, the brothers were okay, but the sons. So you were, you've been a gentleman, she tells him. I think all his films have moments like that. A friend of mine was talking about actually Tony Erdman, the Maranata film. Uh, I think it was Will who said this. Tony Erdman is so funny because it acknowledges the tragedy. Ah. And I think that's a great way actually to describe every you know, great Lubitsch film. He doesn't create a world where there is no pain, but the pain is filtered through this way of dealing with it, which is to laugh. Yes, yes. And also through kindness. Who else could deal with the Nazis? The way he did, right? Like in to be or not to be. Well, that's the thing. It's he he, he manages to undercut you know the Nazi ideology better than any director I've ever seen, because he mm. refuses to meet them on their level in any way, including that of a humanity. In to be or not to be, all the Nazis are given their humanity. They're characters who feel like they're fully fleshed out humans, even when they're cartoonish buffoons. And that's, yes. I mean, part of Lubitsch's big thesis with that film, right? Which is that it's a response against this dehumanizing ideology by refusing mm. to dehumanize any, anybody. And on the other hand, 
when he says jump, they jump. Yes. <laughs> Which is just, I, I, I teach that film in my in, in, uh, in film class occasionally. And that is there's no line in any film I teach that will get a laugh more consistently than jump. <laughs> we should probably move on and talk a little bit about Carmen now. <laughs> oh, that was a good intro. Yeah. So Carmen. Oh, there's so many ways we can approach Carmen. Um, just for some little like uh, to bring us up to speed on where we're at in history. It is now December 17th, 1918, which is the day this film was released. So we are officially in the post-war era, uh, at least post-Great War. You know, lots is changing in Germany. I mean, there's uh, in the Scott Eamon book, uh, there's this wonderful little anecdote where uh, Polo Negri and Lubitsch were attending the press preview. And according to Lubitsch, she thought she heard a faint sound of gunfire in the distance. And then Lubitsch assured her, there's nothing anybody can do. Watch the picture. <laughs> and so that's kind of a good portrait of where things were at at the time. So, you know, the Kaiser's abdicated. You have massive social unrest. Um, for more of that, I, I recommend uh, listeners uh, listen to episode zero, which is our interview with expert on the subject, uh, Lauren Faulkner-Rossi. Uh, she goes into this at length, and it's wonderful. The Kaiser abdicated a couple of days after the premiere of the film. But it's that moment, right, where the war is mm -hmm. ending, the blockade from the West is still on. Yeah, so Germany is still being uh, blockaded. A new government or a new type of government hasn't yet been decided. Yeah, so there's demonstrations all over Berlin as to what kind of government uh, is going to come next. So it's a moment of chaos. It's also a moment where, because of the chaos, everything is open. Yeah, so my understanding is that as soon as the government fell, you know, but a new government hadn't been instituted, there was no censorship, right? So that, mm -hmm. I think, is also interesting in relation to Carmen and to the figure of Carmen, you know, because I do think that even though you had the Prosper Mary May novel, you know, and you had the Bizet opera, this particular Carmen is quite a radical figure. I mean, I think it's very difficult to come across a figure for whom sex is a weapon and a pleasure and something to be intelligent with and about and to use and to delight in, right, the way that Carmen is. And I think it's very interesting to look at this film, Lubitsch's film, you know, in, well, in several ways. First of all, you know, one can look at it in relation to the other Paula Negri films that he did, because obviously she's an important figure in his cinema for this period, right? Mm -hmm. She was a big star. She was a UFA star. This film was designed around her. And I think it's very different than other Carmen films. Yeah, because there's a whole spate of them, right? From, you know, Otto Preminger's musical of Carmen Jones with Dorothy Dandridge. Uh, there's Carlos Sauda's very famous flamenco version of Carmen. There's Rita Hayworth, The Loves of Carmen. I mean, there's endless, endless, endless. There's the Francesco Rossi. I have seen this film uh, compared to the uh, Cecil B. DeMille one from 1915, uh -huh. which I have not yet seen. I have not yet seen that one either. But what I think is interesting is that often when you watch these adaptations of Carmen, there's an interesting and subtle shift to focus. The focus is either on Jose's fall or on Carmen's freedom and seduction and the, also her fall, right? But the the accent is an important one, right? So in, in Carlos Sauda's film, it's all about, you know, how this important choreographer who also plays Jose is really destroyed. His art and his life and so on is destroyed by this woman 
who drives him to murder. So he goes from being an important choreographer to really being a murderer. You know, there are other films like uh, Carmen Jones, yeah, like The Preminger, where actually the accent is placed on the delight, yeah, of Carmen. Yeah, I, and the, 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 her delighting in herself, in her action, in her sexuality, you know, um, but also the audience's delight in that freedom, right? And I think this Lubitsch's film is, the accent is on Pola Negri. It's on Carmen, mm. and particularly as played by Pola Negri. It's not on Harry Liedke's Jose, yeah? much less on Dolores. That, that is actually a very interesting thing because if the accent is on a woman's freedom and a woman's pleasure and on her smarts, it makes it very different than if the whole accent is about, you know, how this horrible woman drives a man to ruin. She does, but actually one comes off with a different impression. My impression after watching the film is the delight in Pola Negri yeah, whom I really have seen mainly in Lubitsch films. I've seen very little of Paula Negri's other silent films. Yeah, I, I really basically only know her through uh, Lubitsch. And she's fantastic. She was a discovery for me. Just her freedom, her freedom of movement, her kind of abrasiveness and street, street smarts and, you know, the way that she uses her body, right, which is, a body that's used freely, <laughs> yes, that she's unembarrassed and unashamed. And you could feel like her power, right? And it's a power that comes not really from her body, but an intelligence that understands, yeah, that her sexuality, which, you know, other women might find a source of uh, uh, something to be scared of or to be prey to or a danger to them, yeah, is something that can be proactively used and weaponized and 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 delighted. She does two things at once in this that I rarely see in, you know, performances from this particular era, partially because it's often hard to make them out. Like in actually a good comparison is uh, the version of Mami Ma, which is I think the same version that you're familiar with, which is potato quality um, we watched. And uh, you can't make out her facial expressions throughout any point in that film. In this though, because, you know, the, especially on this new restoration where, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty gorgeous. You get both her giant, you know, hammy, um, large scale macro body uh, movements, but also the uh, the nuance she puts into you know her her facial acting mm. and the expressiveness of that. I, I love I love a good ham, uh, but she manages to be a very nuanced ham in this. Watching the 2018 restoration, it really made me think that a lot of what we associate with Dietrich, yeah a kind of a self-assured sexuality, an intelligent, a kind of a sardonicism, you know, the way that she holds her cigarette, her looks. And actually, it was very interesting because, you know, if you see the devil as a woman, the whole look of uh, Dietrich in Devil as a Woman is taken directly from this version of Carmen, right? The spit curl, the peineta at an angle, the flowers at the other angle. Of course, Travis Banton, yeah, and Joseph von Sternberg and Dietrich take it to like dizzying Art Deco <laughs> heights. It's like, you know, so incredibly excessive. But the fundamentals of that look come from here. 
right? And I also think that those kinds of attitudes you see later, again, embodied by Dietrich in what's Billy Wilder's film set in Berlin? Foreign Affair. In Foreign Affair, that kind of disillusioned kind of songstress. Yeah, it's uh, it's a world in which, you know, all this type of criminality is what you need to do in order to just get by. One thing I'd, I'd love to touch upon, too, is... Um, we haven't really had a chance on this show yet to talk about the situation with Ufa. I'm very fascinated by Lubitsch's career as a whole, you know, because he's someone who was an actor, right? Who was a star, not just an actor. I've seen some of the posters, yeah, for some of the films that he did, like from 1915. And it's re- really like his name is the size of, you know, the name of the film. He was a star actor, right? Um, someone who came from the stage, who worked with Reinhardt, but who was nonetheless a celebrity, a star. Yeah, he was somebody who was spoken about. He was in the newspapers. And on the other hand, he also immediately began co-writing his films. He amassed this whole people who would work with him really throughout the 20s, and some of them even went on to Hollywood with him. But he's also the only figure that I can think of that aside from being a star director, went on to later run Paramount, Mm -hmm. right? I think part of that is also shaped by his experiences in this period, right? Because I think Ufa was founded in 1917. I forget the name of the company that uh, Lubitsch had been working for before, but it got incorporated by... That was Pegu, Scott Davidson's company. You know, and that got taken over by Ufa. So uh, uh, Lubitsch found himself at UFA, and I could be wrong about this, but I think he also became a stockholder at UFA. I don't know much more than that. I'm not an economic historian. This is kind Mm. of just what I've been able to gather. And also, I want to highlight here, there's a superb book by Sabina Hake, which I also think is not as well known as it should be in relation to Lubitsch's oeuvre, and it's called uh, Passions and Deceptions, the Early Films of uh, Ernst Lubitsch. You know, and that has wonderful information about that as well. There's a few kind of things that stuck out to me in terms of Lubitsch's growth as an artist in this period. But I think before that, as far as the kind of economic side of this goes, um, this was, if I'm not mistaken, the first or maybe earliest surviving Lubitsch film to get a, you know, a significant North American version. And that version was called uh, Gypsy Blood. And I actually managed to watch both versions, the European uh, restoration from 2018 and the much older, uh, much less quality heavy (laughs) uh, version Mm. of the uh, film. The big difference between the two, aside from frame rate, which I think can explain most of the difference in in runtime, because the European version is 93 minutes, the American version is 64, but that restoration runs at 24 frames per second versus the European one, which appears to run 16. Uh, there's, I'm had so many dis- I'm so many disclaimers deep at this point, but the American one has a framing story. It's a campfire yes. story. It's a campfire story, and it's all about a man's ruin. Yeah, it's almost like you know, a kind of a puritanism that sets up. We're, re- we're going to show you this woman being bad, in quotation marks, right? But really, only to teach you the moral lesson of a man's ruin. This is how a man gets mm-hmm. ruined, by women like this. It's very interesting that the German version has none of that. The German version, actually, you know, the, the first image that, that you see, I think, is uh, Lubitsch, which is, again, kind of unheard of, really. So, you know, so I think uh, the, the title say directed by Ernest Lubitsch, and then you have Lubitsch in his study looking 
rich and glamorous and young <laughs> and kind of, you know, being very pleased to be there, really. And you see him opening a book. Yeah. And then the next image you see is that of Pola Negri. So, so to begin with a campfire story about a man's ruin or, you know, a famous director telling you the story of Carmen as glamorized by, you know, the big star of the moment, Paula Negri, is really an important uh, difference in how you're introduced to the story. It's what I was talking earlier about where you put the accent, which has kind of, you know, an ethical and moral alignment. I, I think um, I, one thing that that, that I'm curious about is um, like, I would assume that Lubitsch probably didn't have any personal involvement in the creation of the campfire story. Part of why I'm inclined to think that is that the lighting of the campfire story is unlike anything in it's, it's worlds away from anything he'd ever done. It's very difficult for us to tell because yeah, like, like you said, the quality, uh, the visual quality of the DVD that has the American version is so poor that all mm-hmm. you see is black and white in splotches, right? You, you see <laughs> no gradations of light. So I would be really hard-pressed to be able to say, you know, whether that was filmed by Lubitsch's team or whether that was filmed at UFO, you know, whether like some, you know, it could have easily been done, you know, in the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if it had been done in Germany. I mean, I'm sure they were very eager, you know, to sell these stories abroad. But yeah, it kind of, certainly I could tell you that the first few times I watched it, it never occurred to me that that wasn't filmed by Lubitsch. It, it only it begins to be raised as a question when you see that that scene is not in the original version. It's interesting, too, some of the editorial decisions um, mm. made differently between the two as well. The death of Carmen is massively truncated mm. in the American version. In the uh, German version, we linger on her as she slowly dies. And, and the last frame of the film is of Paul Negri lying dead, Harry Lidke over her body. And then, you know, you have the American version where that's a very quick moment that's cut to from a wide shot. And then we fade out, and we fade back to the campfire. You know, there's a kind of um, a distance the American film yes. has towards the tragedy in the story. It's yes. almost like they're trying to, you know, soften the edges, I guess, which is a very stereotypical thing to say about an Americanization. Yes. I, I think there's all kinds of uh, interesting differences, you know, that really revolve around the character of Carmen. I mean, most of what you see that's been cut out is really Carmen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a few scenes with the girlfriend and Don Jose suffering, but they're very small. They, you know, I think most of what I most of what I noticed, let's let's say, is Carmen with other men. Yeah, those scenes seemed more extended in the German version than in the American version. The American version is far more cut up with title cards. There's way more of them. And that's where I often noticed material missing is where, you know, you'd have mm. a scene in the German version, like in the jail cell, there's maybe two or three title cards, like intertitles with dialogue. In the American version, it's title cards, small beat, title cards, small beat. T- it it's, feels almost cut to ribbons. It's the chaos cinema version yes. of it. You know? Yes, and, I, and there's a sense of a loss of rhythm and drama when you, when you cut it up like that. Uh, and of course, rhythm is essential to Lubitsch. Rhythm is how, in comedies, he gets most of his laughs, right? Mm. Uh, the flow of things. So if you interrupt that flow, you know, you're interrupting quite a lot of Lubitsch. I, I, you know, I, I, I was really delighted to be able to see the 2018 uh, restoration. I hope they put it out as a Blu-ray uh, soon. It makes a huge difference. It's like oh, yeah. you're seeing the film uh, for the first time. But I do also think that some, you know, because 
when I, when I first saw this film, I wrote a blog post saying, oh, well, you know, like, uh, it's so interesting because I'd already seen a lot of uh, Lubitsch's earlier shorts. I, you know, I kept thinking, well, if unless someone had told me that this was a film by Lubitsch, I wouldn't be able to recognize it as a Lubitsch film. All of that humor and frothiness and so on kind of, you know, seems largely lacking. But of course, you forget that there's this whole period of his career yeah, where he did these large-scale spectacles or historical epics, you know, and the most famous uh, of, of which is uh, Madame de Bari, right? You know, and it's exactly that kind of marrying of, like, the personal to the historical and the exotic. I mean, you know, Carmen is like a case study in a certain kind of European Orientalism, mm-hmm. right? It is there, and some of the things I think are very impressive. The way that he handles crowds is astonishingly expressive so there's that whole scene at the beginning where you know the soldiers the regiment goes into seville you know we're used to american continuity editing so at first there's this dislocation you're not quite sure geographically kind of you know where you are where the uh, cigarette factory is and so on right but actually it kind of it creates like this mood of revelry and delight and he uses the horizon of the gates yeah to kind of you know have the characters coming on you there's not a, a sector of the composition that you look at where there isn't something happening, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of and something of interest. I mean, you know, an extraordinary use of the frame, an extraordinary use of movement, which is not necessarily camera movement at this point, but it's, it's movement to and away yeah, from the camera, really. This is such a leap forward since the last non-potato quality Lubitsch film in this retrospective, which is I Don't Want to Be a Man, in terms of, I think, his the almost artfulness of his compositions, um, just as beautiful frames to look at. Um, in the second half, which the, where which is where I do think that a lot of the frothiness is sorely missed, I was almost carried along by just every so often a frame would happen and you're just, wow, this is so expressive. When our uh, captain and Carmen basically become pirates and there's these scenes of them kind of traversing these kind of abstract cliff faces. Um, those are just gorgeous frames. I don't think Lubitsch is particularly known for just the every frame of painting thing, right? But these are truly like painterly compositions where combined with the tinting, which is beautiful. You know, I'm, I'm looking at one right now where you have this beautiful semicircle cutting into the frame with a group of pirates scaling this cliff and it's just it's, it's beautiful to look at yeah. crowd pleaser trying to give you you know show you a good time and it is interesting to me though that the second half of this film i mean this is the most i've ever kind of felt like there was a, a half of a lubitsch film that i just loved i i just find that i found the first half of this completely successful for me and then the second half to me it falls into that lubitsch thing where when he whenever in my opinion at least i've seen him try his hand at just straight drama i always feel like there's some sort of spark missing well it's so difficult to argue differently because so many of his masterpieces from about 1925 onwards are filtered through comedy. I think the thing about uh, Lubitsch that I think maybe I haven't underlined enough is that he's kind, so he never makes fun at people for not being very bright, but actually he delights in intelligence. Uh, You see that in all his films. Claudette Colbert and Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, she's like a smart cookie. (laughs) All of them are. Miriam Hopkins is all, all of them are, right? And he delights in that. And you see that in this film. Yeah. In, in in part of the delight of Lubitsch in Carmen is not just that she's sexy, but it's that she's smart. Yeah. She's super intelligent in a way that Don Jose is just like a dumb lug. 
you know, it's like that central irony is so fascinating in this movie where on paper, Carmen is a villain, right? Carmen mm. is, I mean, in the American version, you know, it implies, you know, she was actually some sort of manifestation of the devil, <laughs> but, mm. but as performed and portrayed by, you know, in the collaboration between Negri and Lubitsch, you're kind of rooting for her, yes. <laughs> you know, cause, uh, she's the smart one. Yeah. And you're delighting in her because, you know, she's an oppressed person, you know, she is a Roma she is discriminated against. She is oppressed. She's got very options in her life. You get a sense that a lot of those options basically revolve around prostitution of one kind or another. To kind of be smart enough to kind of work through that and beyond that and with that, you have to, right? There is kind of a delight in that. Whereas, And there's a class dimension here, isn't there? Mm. There's kind of like a class and an ethnic dimension in the story of Carmen that I'm not sure if Lubitsch consciously picks up on, but that nonetheless remains evident in the film. He is a member of a landed, if not gentry, someone who's got enough land yeah, to be able to end up a sergeant in his regiment. Where, whereas she's really like a, a subaltern figure li- living in the dregs <laughs> of society, both economically and ethnically. In a way, kind of you should be rooting for her Lubitsch is with her in a way that kind of makes sense and that gives us reason to delight in her freedom and even in the price she has to pay for it. Uh, you mentioned uh, kind of uh, Carmen, this Carmen's place in the development of the screen femme fatale. Carmen as a figure is central. I think the whole idea of the femme fatale stems from the figure of Carmen, you know, and the figure of Carmen through Mary May, through the Bizet opera, uh, through, you know, the famous drawings of Spain, you know, that were done in this period, you know, kind of the way of, of dress, uh, the powerful sexuality, the living in an underworld of crime and prostitution, even the idea of working in a factory. Yeah, the heat, the smoke. This particular version, I can only speculate, right? It was a very big success. I think, you know, one of the biggest successes of the year in Germany also an immense success uh, in the United States. The uh, distribution of all of those Lubitsch films, one after the other, in 19, is it 21, 22? Most of them starring Paula Negri get released, is the basis for Paula Negri's subsequent Hollywood stardom, right? So I think the figure of Carmen, the figure of Paula Negri, as imbued by Carmen, yeah, kind of all of that, I think, has to be uh, considered influential to the development of the femme fatale on film. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you have that uh, the dynamic too, where inevitably the supposed villain of almost any film with a good femme fatale, you'll be rooting for her <laughs> no matter what. The reason for that is because of the freedom conveyed. There's a real freedom and a danger. And also, I think, a choice of freedom. Because I think what we also forget is that these choices are not made in the same context. I mean, you know, it's very different to be sexually free after the pill, <laughs> and, you know, and after antibiotics and so many things, than it is to be sexually free and intelligent with it 
in the teens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I look forward to seeing how this developed because I mean, we're, we're just now entering, I mean, this film's released plus around a year, you're, you're entering the, you know, most famously, I mean, obviously roiled, but, uh, in many ways, uh, kind of liberated eras in any place that's ever occurred in, in you know, in 20th century history. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how this continues to develop in the, especially in the Lubitsch's I haven't seen coming up. It's, a, it's an important context to the rest of uh, Lubitsch's work, because, of course, you know, part of that economic crisis and rampant inflation, you know, that is part of Weimar is also why he was able to do these extraordinary, huge historical spectacles, right? Yeah, they were made for big budgets, but very cheap in the context of a German economy out of control. You can get thousands of extras for very little. <laughs> the crowd scenes I've seen in Loves of the Pharaoh look absolutely mm. absurd. Mm. <laughs> Uh, so I can't wait to see that. I mean, and then I find it interesting too, because this, this film is such an ex escalation, um, in terms of scale. Uh, this is easily, I mean, of the surviving films that we have watched the largest scale film he's done up to this date. But I mean, then immediately you have, um, the oyster princess and Madame Dewberry, Anna Boleyn, uh, wildcat loves the Pharaoh, just these huge films before, obviously, I mean, you have the drastic downscaling in many ways uh, yes. in once he moves to Hollywood, especially in the mid to late twenties. And then he never really does an, an epic after that. I mean, the Mary widow has some large scenes, but everything is uh, becomes much more kind of chambery later on. Well, I think, you know, I went to this fantastic exhibition of uh, Picasso's Guernica and the, the exhibition was fantastic because they included all of his sketches for that painting. And he was, he was constantly working. He never did less than like four or five a day, including Sundays, right? And what you saw in those paintings is that every line became sharper and cleaner and simpler. And if you take the mm -hmm. same analysis to Lubitsch's work, that's what happens in his work. It becomes cleaner and simpler, you know, just as potent. If you look again at the shop around the corner, what is it? It's basically like a couple of sets. And that's all mm. you need, right? The cast is an, a small ensemble. It's an ensemble, but it's very small. I think you could say the same with things like Trouble in Paradise, right? It is like a honing in, a kind of a simplifying, yeah, to greater and greater effect. This is merely the beginnings that we're talking about. I mean, I think the only thing that we haven't really touched on that for me, as someone of Spanish origin, is crucial, is really the way that all of these stories have shaped notions of Spanishness. There is a very, very famous and interesting uh, Spanish version of Carmen called Carmen la de Triana, which was made during the Spanish Civil War at Yufa. <laughs> yeah? oh and my gosh. there's, a, there's a, a fascinating Treba film with Penelope Cruz called uh, La Niña de Tus Ojos, The Girl of Your Dreams, which is all about the filming of this story in Nazi Germany in 1936. So you can imagine, the film is all about Roma. Yeah, kind of Roman people were sent to concentration camps by Nazi Germany, right? So here is like this worshipfulness of Andalusia and Seville and Spain and bullfights and, you know, uh, uh, Roma and so on. Yeah, the contradictions in that are amazing. And of course, the other thing is that the drawings, the opera, the story is so potent that it's seen as one of those exports that then 
actually shaped ideas of Spanish national identity and iconography from within, but that is kind of, you know, imported really, yeah, from France or from all of these different kind of movie versionings, of which there are a lot of Spanish ones, but the most famous ones are all from abroad as well. That is mm. one thing that I find very, very interesting. And I find very interesting the way that Lubitsch imagines this Spain, the Seville, which, you know, really looks a lot like Cordoba. And you can see that they've done this hodgepodge of images from Spain and kind of <laughs> and put them all together. Well, like most Lubitsch films, it's in uh, what we would call Lubitsch land. You yes. know, where it's, <laughs> it's this kind of very, you know, bespoke combination of a bunch of incongruous parts from different cultures. Lubitschlandia. Yes. <laughs> I kind of also, I suppose, want to underline once again mm. the crowd scenes because, you know, as we said a moment earlier, Lubitsch will become simpler and simpler and simpler. He'll go in, you know, you'll be seeing drawing rooms and little shops and so on. So this type of spectacle, which is so central to this period in his career, yeah, he'll let go of, right? It's things that you associate with Cecil B. DeMille and not Lubitsch, right? Lubitsch, had he been less intelligent, less kind, less knowing, I mean, could easily have been a Cecil B. DeMille. He was capable of doing, yeah, all of the things. The, the, the what-ifs of Lubitsch's career are so interesting to me because, I mean, uh, with with a few tweaks, he could have easily gone right into making German Expressionist films, too. I mean, he, he was in the right place in the right time. I'm, if he had stayed in Berlin, um, I'm glad he didn't. But if he had stayed in Berlin for, you know, a while longer, he might have been swept up in that. I mean, there's, there's so many what-ifs with him for me that are just... I mean, he could have done musicals for the rest of his career, too. Well, he, he, de he definitely could have. I mean, they're absolutely... I don't quite agree with you. I don't think Lubitsch could ever have made hmm. German expressionist cinema. Um, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean like he's going to be a Fritz Lang, but that, I mean, I can see him like going further down the wildcat path, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. A German expressionist birthday cakes. That that makes more sense. I, I don't think he had the dourness or sourness oh, no. or <laughs> cynicism or that bleak view of life. Yeah. And, and I think one of the most admirable things about Lubitsch is how post-1933 he continued in the comic vein that he did, because he was someone who knew exactly what was happening. To maintain that spirit yeah, and that faith in the face of all that was happening around him, I think is, is incredibly admirable. That's one of the most touching things to me about, I mean, to be or not to be, right, where it stares that right in the face and looks at it with humor and humanity mm. instead of going dour. Mm. That film is like three steps away from like the mortal storm or mm. something. Uh, it feels like Lubitsch had that, I don't know, he had this confidence in his convictions, at least tonally, which I find incredibly admirable. But uh, it's, it's, it's like a little alternate history. Imagine if uh, Lubitsch had been like the one great comic filmmaker in the German Expressionist movement. That would have been interesting. <laughs> like, it's like, in all the history books, you have Metropolis, and then you have this great comedy that plays in that same thing. Anyways, that, that would have been, that would have been fascinating. Um, but, but yeah, well, th thank you so much for, for making the time for, uh, for this massively obscure film. I want to once again recommend to everyone the 2018 restoration. I'll, I'll put some info in the show notes about it. But especially in the show notes, I'm going to put your website. The URL is notes on film and then numerical one. 
com, but I'll put a link. I'm going to try and plug this website more shamelessly than you probably would, because um, this website is fantastic. The essays you've written about early Lubitsch are, have been an incredible source. I have definitely pilfered endlessly from them to research for this podcast. Um, it's a roadmap. Even the footnotes are incredible. Please check out uh, Jose's website. Thank you very much. <laughs> I kind of use it to just sometimes write very short notes, sometimes a paragraph on film I've seen. Uh, I've done a series of podcasts with figures in film studies. I suppose people who interest me, I'm, uh, the joy of having a podcast is if you read someone's book and you like it, you, you get them on and talk about it, right? So there are mm-hmm. podcasts there with Richard Dyer and Tom Waugh and, and Catherine Grant and, you know, kind of whoever's work has has inspired me and you know other people might uh, enjoy listening to those as well. well well thank you so much and see you next time next week fran hoffner joins us to discuss meyer from berlin head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes how would lubich do it is a production of moving image agency If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 